Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Just last week, Pope Francis became the first Roman Catholic Pope to visit Mosul, a city in northern Iraq that under the Islamic State became the capital of their caliphate. Uh, During those years, 2014 through 2017, Christians were driven out of the city or worse, tortured and executed. And speaking on Sunday in what's known as Church Square, surrounded by four badly damaged or destroyed Christian churches of different denominations, Pope Francis said, the real identity of this city is that of harmonious coexistence between people of different backgrounds and cultures. He went on to declare that hope is more powerful than hatred and peace more powerful than war. And as I was hearing the radio report about this, it got me thinking about what the experience of Iraqi Christians must be like, especially those who had been forced to flee and were now being encouraged to return to Mosul and rebuild after the devastation of ISIS. Their story felt a little more real to me because, you may not know, but the ancient city of Babylon, where we've been situated these past few weeks as we've been looking at the book of Daniel, was located in modern-day Iraq, about 80 kilometers south of the current capital, Baghdad, less than 500 kilometers from Mosul. Judah, during the time of Daniel, the story we're reading in this book, was under foreign occupation, conquered by the mighty Babylonian Empire, with some carried off into exile in the city of Babylon itself. And we've been saying over the last few weeks that Daniel wants to teach us what it means to live faithfully in exile, to live biculturally, to live according to the principles and priorities of the kingdom of God, even if and when you find yourself in the midst of a culture that doesn't know God which is a little bit like our culture. And one of the things that's been surprising in Daniel is, at least it's been surprising to me, how positive the tone of Daniel often is to the culture around, towards life in Babylon. Daniel and his friends, they've found themselves in some difficulties, yes, but they've often also found themselves in positions of influence, positions of responsibility and power, Daniel was close enough to Nebuchadnezzar that when Nebuchadnezzar reveals to him his dream in chapter 4, Daniel says to him, my Lord, let this not be the case for you, let this be for your enemies. Because even if Nebuchadnezzar is proud and arrogant, Daniel has an affection for Nebuchadnezzar and for his regime and for everything that he has experienced there. But that raises a question that has been there in the book of Daniel as well, and it's been looming in the background, a question that maybe comes up a little more in Daniel chapter 5, what are God's people to do when the circumstances are not favourable? When the people who rule are not, 
doing so in a way that is honourable, when they rule unjustly? What is God doing when His people are persecuted and His name is profaned? Can God be trusted to see injustice? Can He be trusted to deal with injustice and to silence the oppressive giants of our world? Well, Daniel chapter 5 answers those questions. I've organised it under three headings. Number one, if you're going to live in exile in a place where it's hard to follow God because the culture around you doesn't, you need to remember that God sees and judges. Remember that God sees and judges. Point two, resist the temptations of status and people-pleasing. And three, rest in the mercy of a just God. Remember that God sees and judges. Resist the temptations of status and people-pleasing and rest in the mercy of a just God. Daniel chapter 5 introduces us to a new king named Belshazzar and the first thing we need to learn about this king is that he knows how to throw a party. King Belshazzar, Daniel 5 verse 1, made a great festival for a thousand of his lords and he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. The date of this is October 11, 539 BC. And we know that because on October 12, 539 BC, the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And this party takes place the night before Babylon is captured. In fact, we have more information about this chapter from extra-biblical sources than we have about a number of the chapters in Daniel in terms of dating and location and all those sorts of things. And Belshazzar, sorry, has turned this party up to 11. And he's commanded his servants to bring in the gold and the silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had captured from the temple in Jerusalem when he'd conquered Judah. And in a moment of madness, the king and all his guests, lords, wives, and concubines, drank to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. Belshazzar has lost his mind. To understand this party, it helps to know a little about the context in which it was all occurring. See, the Medo-Persian Empire had been advancing towards Babylon for some months, since about the summer, June, and uh, Belshazzar must have known that they were on their way. In fact, Belshazzar wasn't exactly king of Babylon. He was the son of the true king, Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. For a 10-year period, Nabonidus had left the capital and had gone to build temples and palaces in the desert for a god who most Babylonians considered a minor deity. And he'd left his son, Belshazzar, in charge, a kind of king in place of a king, a co-regent with his father. Now, you're saying, hang on, doesn't this passage called Nebuchadnezzar the father of Belshazzar, what's going on there? Well, in Aramaic and Hebrew, the term father can mean a biological father, but it could also mean ancestor, like how the Jewish people would speak of their father Abraham, 
and in some cases, it can refer specifically to a respected or illustrious predecessor. And I think that's what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is not uh, Belshazzar's father, but he is uh, the, the great king of Babylon to whom Daniel and this chapter point back in contrast to Belshazzar. And scholars think that the reason for Belshazzar's party must have been to try and unite his empire, which was vast and had people from all over, many of whom were not uh, Babylonian by blood, trying to unite them against the inevitable battle, uh, before the inevitable battle with Persia, or, or else Belshazzar is so confident in the city's walls that he throws this party as a boast to the strength and impenetrability of Babylon. He's pulled out the Jewish temple goblets, which, as we said, Nebuchadnezzar had plundered, but had never been brazen enough to use. And Belshazzar and his boys are doing the equivalent of ancient jelly shots from something much more sacred than the communion cups. And maybe it's a way of harking back to the glory days of Nebuchadnezzar, where Babylon was at its strongest. But I think it's pretty likely, and, and commentators also suggest this, that it's supposed to be a deliberate defiance against Israel's God. In fact, we know from Daniel chapter 8, uh, you should know if you when you read Daniel, that the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 6, are, are kind of historical accounts, narrative, and the second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are, are dreams and visions, apocalyptic literature. And so, what happens in chapters 7 through 12 are visions that occur throughout the historical period that Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is occurring. So, chapter 8's later in the book of Daniel, but actually chronologically earlier than what's going on in Daniel chapter 5. And what happens in Daniel chapter 8 is that in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, this is the tenth year of Belshazzar's reign that we're looking at here, but in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel received a vision from God which foretold the destruction of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar is saying, in effect, my gods, my wealth, and my might will protect me from my enemies. Let's drink from the goblets of this defeated God and toast my gods. And into this situation, God crashes the party. The king looks at the walls of the banqueting hall and sees a human hand appear, but no body. For a moment, he probably wonders whether this is the Shiraz talking or the gods. But as the fingers start writing these four words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, Belshazzar gets this sickening feeling that the jig is up. The writing's on the wall, to use the phrase that comes from this very chapter. He fears that his fate is sealed. And it's a good idea not to assume that we have nothing in common with Belshazzar here. Always a dangerous thing to assume that we have nothing in common with uh, the characters in biblical texts. He fears that the end is near and he throws a central epic party, either as a distraction from impending doom or as a way to shore up his reputation and significance. And aren't we often tempted to do something similar 
Not a party for a thousand, no, but as our culture has largely given up on God, don't we, in our culture, have this lingering sense of fear that all of our lives might amount to nothing? Often we do a pretty good job of suppressing it. We turn to entertainment or alcohol or sex or new technology, fashion or home improvement projects as ways of keeping the fears of insignificance at bay. But there are also more subtle ways that we seek to find significance by throwing ourselves into our work or losing ourselves in a romantic relationship or maybe even shoring up our worth by serving at church. All of these things, of course, are good things, but if you take them and you make them ultimate things, if they become the things from which you get your identity, the things that justify you, that make you think, I have a self-worth and significance, I'm something in the world. If you use these things to put off the niggling sense that our lives might amount to nothing then perhaps you're doing something that's not, insi- uh, not that different than what Belshazzar is doing here. Now, the king is a mess, maybe literally, and after the familiar circus act of enchanters, Chaldeans and diviners can't interpret the writing on the wall, the queen, who is probably actually the queen mother, the wife of Nabonidus, or maybe even the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, she hears the commotion and she comes in. She suggests that Daniel might want to summon, sorry, that the king might want to summon Daniel, who is endowed with a spirit of the holy gods. It's good theology and bad theology at the same time. Good theology, there's something different about this Daniel, a spiritual presence in his life. Bad theology, he's got a spirit of the pagan gods, plural, rather than the one true and holy God, Yahweh. The queen continues, verse 11, if you want to follow along. In the days of your father, he was found to have enlightenment, understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and diviners, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. One little syllable makes all the difference. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. See, Daniel has a reputation where there's something confusing that needs wisdom. He's the guy to call. And that right there is a beautiful picture of what we want to be like, what we want to aspire to as followers of Jesus, people who our friends turn to in moments of crisis and confusion to ask for wisdom and counsel. We don't have what Daniel has, a kind of unique insight at that, into the, the direct action of God in a moment, but we do have spiritual insight into what God is doing in the world through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the presence of the Spirit who lives within us. 
uh, Sam Chan, who spoke at the CCRW Leadership Conference a little earlier in the year uh, and has written a book that is quite helpful on um, how to be and share the, the story of Jesus, how to be the presence of Jesus and st- share the story of Jesus with your friends. Uh, he says that one of the things is we want to become our friend's de facto chaplain in times of crisis and trouble. We become the person that they come to, the person they turn to, the person they think, who do I know who might have something that can help in this moment? And when they do, we point them to the God from whom true wisdom comes. That's what Daniel does here in this chapter, although in this case it's not good news for the king. The four words that Belshazzar sees on the wall are four monetary terms. Mene, mene, tekel, parson, meaning a mina, repeated twice, mene, a shekel, and a half. And uh, each of these Aramaic words has a related verb, which means numbered, weighed, and divided. And Daniel picks this up. He, he sees what this might mean, and he says to Belshazzar, verse 26, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And then Perez, which is the singular of parson, the plural, Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The writing really is on the wall for Belshazzar and Babylon. God's judgment is swift and it's assured. And one of the things that Daniel 5 is a reminder of, a promise of, is that God sees and He judges. He sees and He judges. We get a bit uncomfortable uh, with the idea of God judging our world, and yet if we stop for a moment, we long for a world, don't we, where women and sometimes also men are sexually assaulted and harassed, where the rich exploit the poor, where political rulers go unchecked, where bosses make life difficult for their employees and vindictive relatives try to draw blood wherever possible in families. It's comforting news that God sees suffering and pain. He's opposed not just to the earthly rulers, but to the ruler who is the prince of the air, the prince of this world, the Bible says, Satan, whose entire job is to wreak havoc on God's world. And Daniel 5 says, God watches, He sees. He's not ignorant of it. He's not distant from it. And he judges. Well, point two, if the first of the things that we need to uh, do is to remember that God sees and that he judges, then secondly, we need to resist the temptations of status and people-pleasing. See, Daniel trusts that God sees and he judges, and so he has this power, this capacity, not to need to seek status or to, uh, sh- to, to firm up his own reputation to please the people in that situation. Daniel, by this point, it's worth knowing, is probably in his early 80s, 
he'd served under Nebuchadnezzar where he was trusted and respected. And despite Nebuchadnezzar's pride and self-conceit, which we looked at last week, he seems to have a lot of affection for the king. But now under Belshazzar, Daniel is out of the center and on the margins. Belshazzar makes it sound like he hardly even knows Daniel. Are you this Daniel? And yet from chapter 8, we know that only a few years earlier in his reign, Daniel was going about the king's business. See, this, I think, has been a a process of Belshazzar of deliberately marginalising God's uh, people and those who Nebuchadnezzar had seen in them a character that was worth including in his royal court. But Daniel doesn't seem to mind. He's not worried or phased that he's been pushed out. Daniel knows that he doesn't serve Belshazzar. He serves God. He doesn't work for Belshazzar. He works for God. And Belshazzar offers him a purple robe, a gold chain, and the third highest rank in the kingdom. Uh, the third highest because that was the highest rank he could offer after Nabonidus, his father and himself. But Daniel says, verse 17, let your gifts be for someone else, or for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. See, status means nothing to him. He doesn't need to be powerful, he doesn't need to find trappings of wealth or success or prestige, and that right there is a lesson to us. Because some of us look to the world's symbols, status symbols, as ways of propping up our security and self-importance. The fancy car, the beautiful house, the dream holidays or travel experiences, the brand of clothes, the number of likes on your Instagram posts. One of the things that's interesting about this passage is that in the end of the chapter, Daniel does get the purple robe, the gold chain and the rank... And he seems like he accepts it at this point. And so what's going on here? I think it's a, a, a little moment of insight, actually, for us. Its, it's point is uh, that God isn't saying you can't have nice things. He's saying make sure those nice things don't have you. God isn't saying you can't have nice things. But make sure those nice things don't have you. Make sure you're not serving them. Make sure they're not the thing that gives you this sense of worth. Don't let them become your identity. Notice that Daniel's conviction that God is in control also means he can resist the temptation to people please. I mean, he doesn't mince his words here, right? He just walks into... Uh, Belshazzar's palace into the banqueting hall, and he says, verse 22, and you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power is your very breath. 
and to whom belong all your ways, you have not honoured. Wow. Talk about speaking truth to power. Some of us find ourselves spineless when we're in the presence of the powerful. Even the powerful within our own workplaces or the spaces that our lives revolve. We crave approval and respect. We fear their rejection. And so we're first to say the positive things when we get the chance and we hold back from the negative feedback or honest truth-telling because we're worried that if we speak up, we'll lose influence and reputation. But God is in control. And if He's the one who weighs and measures the powerful of this world, and if, if we trust in this God to judge justly and to vindicate fairly, then we can let go of the need to always people-please and hold to our convictions. God sees and He judges, and that means that we can resist these temptations to seek status and to people-please. And then finally, point three, we can rest in the mercy of a just God. See, Belshazzar, he sees the writing on the wall and he hears the word of judgment from Daniel's lips and there's no longer any hope from him. His death will be that very night. Daniel implies from uh, his words earlier that Belshazzar should have heeded the wisdom of God. He should have done something about it earlier. He should have seen what God did in humbling Nebuchadnezzar and submitted himself to the God of heaven just like his predecessor did. But Daniel's continued in his pride to mock God and to assert himself arrogantly, and God will not be mocked. And what does this mean for us, we who live this side of the Lord Jesus? Well, when we read Daniel, when we read this chapter, we take it and we bring it through the lens of the gospel and we try and look at what it might mean in our context today. And we have to do that, don't we? Because this is a moment where judgment happens and the place where God's most decisive word of judgment is spoken is at the cross. The cross of Jesus is where we discover that God will not let wickedness go unpunished and at the same time, He will go to the greatest of lengths to rescue sinners like you and me. And sometimes people say, I can't understand Christianity. Why this wrath of God stuff. Why did he have to go to the cross? Christians tell me, oh, God loves you, he's gracious to you and he forgives you, but I'm unmoved. I just don't get it. The reason it doesn't make sense is because we don't understand sin. We don't get the reality that we, because of sin, deserve the judgment that falls on Belshazzar. We don't realize that the cross is God's moment of saying, the jig is up. The writing's on the wall. And if we don't get this, the love of God at the cross doesn't make any sense. It's like if you and I were walking along somewhere down by the harbor, and I say to you, look how much I love you. I jump into the water and I drown. 
And you'd think, but he's crazy. That's not love, that's delusional. But if we're walking along and you slipped and you fell into the water and you were drowning, and in that moment, because I saw that you were drowning, I dived in and I rescued you, but in rescuing you, it cost me my life, then you'd say, wow, look how much he loved me. And it's the same with God. Until we see that the problem that the cross deals with is our problem, until we see that we're the ones who deserve to be weighed and found wanting, then the word of God's grace and of his forgiveness doesn't make sense in our lives. Because what we find at the cross is that God has weighed us and found us wanting. But instead of that judgment falling upon us, it fell on Jesus, even though he lacked nothing. And in the resurrection of Jesus, sorry, God weighed him, and because he lacked nothing, because there was no imperfection in him, because he honored God and served God and obeyed God with every ounce of his being, he was vindicated to glorious, new, victorious life, which he promises to give to anyone who will give up living out of their pride and humble themselves to receive King Jesus. See, one of the kindest things that God can do in your life is to crash the party. To crash the party and shake you out of your sin and make you realize in His mercy that He's poured out His grace on you so that you might live a transformed life. And when you understand this, you'll have hope, even in the midst of injustice in this world. You'll still weep, you'll still long for God to bring that justice finally and fully to bear. But you'll know that because of the cross of Jesus that he has dealt and is dealing with sin and wickedness and evil and injustice. That he's bringing these things to an end, including the profaning of his name. And in the meantime... He calls us not to judge, but to be testimonies of that grace, inviting people into the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who was weighed in our place so that we might receive not the word that we have been found wanting and will die, but that we might receive in Him life because there was nothing lacking in Him, our substitute, our friend. We pray that knowing this Jesus might strengthen us to be the kind of people who stand firmly for you in whatever context that we find ourselves who hold vigorously to the hope, to the knowledge that you see and that you judge. And who resist falling into the traps of our world to try and find our status, our worth, our significance here and now in the halls of power with those who seem to be significant in a worldly way. But we might look to the one who humbled himself 
and find our significance there. We pray it for your glory. Amen.